Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Hey, uh, great to see you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for those of you watching online uh, or catching up on replay on the app. Uh, it's Father's Day here at Eastlake. We're so thankful for all the dads out there. Happy Father's Day to all of you. We're starting a five-week series uh, today on, on labels, and there may not be a more important label to live up to than dad. Uh, there's some impressive weight that comes with that label, and that label has the power to conjure up all kinds of emotions on a wide spectrum uh, of emotions. To co- so kudos to all of you out there trying to live into the best expression of that label and those uh, emotions. But before we get started today, I want to do a little bit of a social experiment. You don't have to actually uh, answer this, but I do want you to sit with it for a moment. So I'm going to ask you a question, uh, and, uh, and if you came with somebody and you're okay with leaning over and being like, this is what it is, that's fine. But for the most part, just like, you know, sit there and be like, yeah, all right, it's good. What's one label, here's the question, what's one label in your life that you hope doesn't come up too early in conversations, in new conversations with new people? And everybody has a label, right? You go, hi, my name's so-and-so, and I'm, you know, in agriculture, I'm in finance, uh, I'm in uh, nuclear waste remediation, or whatever, and they're like, what is that? I work at Hanford. Oh, okay, now I get it. Uh, but what is it? Those are all safe ones. Uh, usually employment uh, stuff is kind of, is kind of safe, but there are, are some perhaps in the area of uh, of employment status that are not as easy uh, to come up with. Right? It's it's really hard. Th- th- you want to delay. Hi, my name's so and so, and I'm unemployed. <laughs> That's something that you want to uh, like delay early. And where do you work? Gosh, I was hoping you wouldn't ask uh, that sort of a question. Or tell me about your life. Are you married? And you're like I'm currently separated. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, we're working on it. Um, you're hoping that that kind of stuff, where I'm divorced, or I'm a single parent, or I'm a, I'm a, I'm a something, uh, comes up uh, a little bit later in the conversation. You don't want that to come up too early. Uh, I grew up in uh, North Idaho, and my mom chose to homeschool us from about second grade uh, through eighth grade. And for a long time, that was one of those things I would hope people would be like, hey, so what school do you go to? And be like, uh, I don't think you've ever heard of it. It's called uh, Home. And um, who's your principal? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's my mom. So there you go. So uh, but it was North Idaho, so the public school system, homeschool, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? So anyways, um, that was one of the things, the, a title or, or whatever that I was, uh, that, that you didn't want brought up too early on. There's just certain things where you're like, it's not that it's not true about me. It's true. It's just that when it comes out, it's complicated to explain it. You know what I mean? Like, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm a UW alum. I'm just, I want to avoid that as long as I can. Um, because it conjures up all kinds of emotions uh, and whatever. So for me, in my line of work, I've been a pastor now at this church for about 12, 12 and a half years. Uh, and then before that, for like five and a half years uh, at somewhere else. And so close to 20 years. For 20 years, I've been, I've been, you know, when people go, what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor to church. And and when they see it in this setting, they show up on Sunday, it's totally normal. It, it's out there. But there are certain settings in which that is brought up, that that is a something that I hope doesn't get up, brought up too early. My favorite is this. For some of you, you're going to go golfing this afternoon because it's Father's Day, the U.S. Opens on, you got inspired, you do your thing, right? And, um, and I, if you drove by the golf course this morning, they were just packed with golf carts. So if you got a tea time, great. If you're going to show up and try and go, I got bad news for you. It's probably not going to happen. Um, 
in golf, if you don't know this, they try and send people out in foursomes. So uh, in groups of four, because that kind of, you know, you know, is a good way for pace of play. And, and so if you show up by yourself or with only one other person, there's a good chance that somebody in the pro shop is going to be like, hey, so we teamed you up with the Johnson twosome. Is that going to be a problem? And uh, it's always like, no, that's fine. It's a good chance to kind of meet some people, right? And here's the thing about golf. It's like four hours long and it's in tight quarters. A lot of times you're riding a cart together. So you're like, hey, I'm going to be your best friend for four hours. Is that going to be a problem? Uh, and inevitably what comes up in that is, uh, you know, what do you do? What's your line of work? And what, what, what tell me about your life or, or whatever uh, the case may be. And while you're also hitting a golf ball and, and using force and with the, the minorest of errors causing major ramifications and all kinds of things that are, are involved in golf and the frustrating nature that is golf in and of itself and the language and the, and the drinks that, uh, you know, you illegally brought on the course and all of the stuff that is happening in the world of golf. That whenever this, this happens, I get teamed up with somebody, we're, we're golfing, it's about hole four. After all kinds of things have been going on, there's language, there's this, that, and the other thing. And, uh, you know, you know, he's squaring, blank, 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 all this kind of stuff. And they'll be like, hey, so uh, what is it that you do for work? And I'll be like, I'm a pastor. And they'll be like, no blankety blank, you know? And that's usually the last curse word that I hear for 14 more holes. It's pretty great. And, uh, and, and it's, it's really hard for them to, like, to, to mentally shift this because they're like, you know, now, now when they swing, it's just more, fr- it takes them, it's a mental game, really. I, I beat them because it's a mental, like they just can't get past it mentally. And so it's really to my advantage to kind of introduce this to, to them uh, at that time. But uh, inevitably, what happens is... Uh, their initial response for a lot of, and this is going to be true for you too. If you've ever been asked, you know, what are you doing this weekend? And you say something, I got church on Sunday. And then they'll be like, oh, church. Don't tell me about your church. And then you say something about church or Eastlake or faith or something like that. And their response is the same response that I get. Uh, they'll, they'll be like, oh, I'm not really religious, but uh, I think that's really cool, you know? Or I'm not really, like so quickly, People want to disassociate themselves from the label of religious. I, I, I'm not really religious. Don't think of me as religious. Um, and, and it's weird. We we don't like we don't like a lot of labels, but especially when it comes to the religious label, nobody wants the label of religious. And and we know this is true because you you've never once you, you don't put that in your dating profile online, do you? Right on like Match.com or something like that. If you even and you don't put it on there, and even when you do see it in somebody else's, you're like, ah oh, man, she looks great, but like she's like she put down religious like that. And early on, that's like, oh, like how religious are we talking? Right? This is like when somebody goes, I'm into cats. You're like, yeah, that's fine. I'm fine with that. But like, how into cats are you? You know what I mean? There's a, there's a level of acceptability when it comes to that. And when it comes to religious, there's a line of like, do you go to church or are you like religious, religious, right? And so then, th- then we are, are quick to say, I, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not into religious. More and more people in today's society, if you do these Gallup polls that come out when people say, are you Christian? Are you Jewish? Are you this, that, and the other thing? Uh, there's always a box for uh, irreligious or secular or, or atheist or agnostic. And one of the, the categories of people that has been growing and growing and growing in, in our world is this idea of either agnosticism, which is like, I don't think anybody can know, but more, more probably likely people just saying irreligious. I'm like, I'm not, don't point me into any sort of box or whatever. I'm not interested in the baggage that comes with it. Uh, and and some, of, some of them maybe are even you and you found Eastlake and it's the most irreligious place that you can find that is still somewhat like 
touches on some things that is good. So you're like, I like this. And if you're, if you say coming here and now I've got to check a box that makes me say that I'm religious, like I'm, I'm not into that. I, I'll continue to come. I like it. Uh, and I'm going to continue coming, but I still think it's irreligious uh, or whatever. And that, that's, that's fine. That's great. It's also why some people leave is because it's not religious enough for them. So that's a, a delicate dance that we have to play. And the bottom line is uh, what I'm trying to get at in, in culture is, uh, that re- the, the term religious has some baggage to it that we just, we'd be like, ah, oh, it's safer to opt for irreligious. Or, or what we do oftentimes is come up with like this thesaurus of, 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 of different names for this that are like far more sexier, right? So we're like, we're inquisitive about faith. We are spiritual. We are searching. We're a searching spiritual person. We are seeking answers, but we don't really know. And, and we never claim arrival at anything. We, we bless ourselves about the journey and all that kind of stuff. Um, so then that leads us to a question that should follow up. If, if in somebody, a position like mine where, you know, my business is the church and, and you're here and it's a Sunday morning, we're gathered together, is what is it about the term religious that is so sort of off-putting? Why are we so afraid of being labeled religious? Is it because of the history that comes with it or the baggage or whatever? Or is it just labels in general? Perhaps just any sort of label that's sort of controversial is, is a tough thing. I came across a quote this week of a book that I read a while back by a guy named David Dark. Um, And here's what he says. When I label people, I no longer have to deal with them thoughtfully. I no longer have to feel overwhelmed by their complexity, the lives that they live, the dreams that they have. I know exactly where they are uh, inside or forever outside my field of care because they've been taken care of. See, our brain functions this way. We categorize people. People say something, we go, oh, you're one of them. Okay, now I know how to think of you. Now I know what to say, what topics are off limit, what topics are on limit, where to kind of go. And, and when it comes to religion, we do this. And then he goes on, he says, it's the mystery of their existence has been solved and filed away before I've had a chance to be moved by them or even begin to catch a glimpse of who they might be. They've been neutralized. There's hardly any action quite so undemanding and so utterly unimaginative as the affixing of a label. It's the costliest of mental shortcuts. And what he means by that is this, that your brain constantly makes mental shortcuts. When you do something over time, you create these habits and eventually you find yourself driving to work without thinking about driving to work. You take exits to get to work and you're like, how did I get here? You just like go into this zone because your brain goes, I know at eight o'clock every morning, this Monday through Friday, this is where I go. And it's a, it's a very healthy way for your brain to kind of deactivate at times so that you can focus on other things and operate it when you need it. And when it comes to labeling, this is kind of what we do do to people. Let me, let, me, um, let me categorize you early so I don't have to hear about your story. I can't, get, I can't get everybody's background and everybody's nuance and personal history. And so when you tell me that you're a Democrat, when you tell me that you're you know, a Republican, when you tell me that you're Christian, when you tell me that you're not or whatever, I know exactly kind of where to paint you in in, in these things. And, and he goes, listen, the problem with that oftentimes, it's the costliest of mental shortcuts when it comes to labeling people um, we don't ever then hear their story. There's no nuance. There's no background. There's no this. I just, oh, I know who you are. And you're like, you don't really though, right? I mean, like that's not true. And, and, and when it comes to us, that's why I think we go, listen, if I get labeled as religious, immediately I'm put into a box that like they've mentally checked out of something. They're, they've kind of, they're unimaginative. They're uninquisitive. They're unthis. And so we would say, I don't want to be labeled as religious. Or we would say, I used to be religious, but I've moved on from my ignorant ways. We have this weird rush to disassociate ourselves from this. It's as if we're trying to communicate, I'm no longer guided by strange notions of how the world works. Um, I, I am irreligious. 
Um, for us, in that scenario, religion is oftentimes a word, if we were def- to define it, a word for the way intellectually underdeveloped people get carried away. That it's a derogatory way and we go, oh, they're religious, right? That's not typically, you're not speaking highly of somebody. You're saying something about how they get carried away with what they believe. They're like behavior modifications that is extreme. They live their, their, their way of doing life in a certain way. that like their kids. It's like boxing them in. I think it's hurting their identity and it's hard to be friends with them. It's hard to be related to them. Family stuff is hard. They're just, they're just religious in, in that way, right? So that's oftentimes how we have come into it. And if that's how you have thought of things, and that's maybe the framework, and maybe I was being a little bit hyperbolic or whatever, but in extreme in, in kind of saying it, but it's not like crazy far off from that. Then this is going to be a five-week series kind of challenging that presumption and that assumption about the term irreligious and why it doesn't quite work for us or for the sake of this series, because what I'd like to propose is that when we do that, when we opt for irreligious and rush to disassociate ourselves from being called religious, it's a distancing move for us that keeps us detached from the fact of our own enthusiasms, our own rituals, our own enmeshments, and our own loves. That what will instead argue, and and you can agree to disagree at the end of this thing, but uh, is that in a way, we're all religious. And even if you wandered in and somebody bribed you with lunch or it's Father's Day, so you came because dad was like, here's what I want from Father's, you know, for Father's Day is you just come to church with me or whatever. Um, and it's, it's pure bribery and, and, and guilting and, you know, that's fine. Um, we're all, in a way, there's, a, there's an inescapability to religiousness, that we're all religious. Or another way to say it is this, that a person's religiosity is never not in play. Somebody's religiosity is never not in play. And something that is also true in this, the reason this is so hard sometimes for us to wrestle with and think about is that it's exceedingly difficult to discuss religion with people who are certain only other people have one. It's really, really hard to talk about it when you're certain that only other people have one. As I was writing... um, my talk, either last week or the week before, I couldn't quite remember. We just finished a series on grandstanding, which is when you, um, you know, take a public stance, leverage something that you say to kind of create a persona or a, a feeling of, I'm, I'm, I'm against all the things that you're against, and I'm for all the things that you're for, and, and we're not really contributing any conversations. We're just kind of having our way with things um, and kind of signaling in a way. Um, and I prefaced it in a way that I do a lot of times in a series like that by saying, listen, I think that this is a way of, of living wisely. I think that um, you know, living in the way of Jesus would cause us to kind of rethink these things. If we're going to take it seriously, then it has implications in this way. But even if you're not religious, I think that there's some value for you. I try and do that a lot because I, I never want you to think, oh, that's just for Christians. That's not for me. I mean, there are definitely some areas uh, in which we would talk about, you know, doctrinal issues that would be like, this is primarily for people who want to identify as Christians and, and, and follow in the way of Jesus. But a lot of times there's some really good, like super helpful things in life. And so I always want to point that out. Like, even if you came and disagree with kind of the fundamental principles, still not a waste of your time. And I found myself writing, or at least I think saying something in first service to be like, hey, if you're not, if you're not a Christian, that's okay. If you're coming at this from a neutral secular standpoint, and I realized I had to catch myself a little bit because I knew it really counteracts what I actually believe, which is that nobody's ever truly neutral. Just because you're not religious doesn't mean you're neutral. Just because you don't 
identify as within a context of an organized religion doesn't mean you're coming at this from a completely secular, separate, like sort of category thing. Um, again, I think there's an inescapability to religion um, that is that ties us and brings us all in. Religion in its, in its kind of root form in terms of a, of a word, its Latin roots is the combination of two things, which is to bind something together or to see something integrated, to, to have something that, that can be like, I see it this way and I see it this way and what if it was this way, right? We're always looking at the world and how it works and trying to just say, this is how I see the world working and this is what I see, this is what makes sense to me and how it should fit together. It's a controlling narrative. And, and so to say I'm irreligious or I, I'm, I'm not really religious is to kind of be a cop-out to something that I don't think you really wanna cop out to. Like you really don't see how life works and functions. I think you do. I think you're, to say that is not to give yourself enough credit. You, you have a way of seeing life. You see how things work. You see how you would say everything, or you, you see how um, you know people would say um, I don't know, like uh, ego or or capitalism or socialism or something. Like you have a perspective of this is how the world sort of works, and so in, in that sense, um, you have a religion. You'd be like, no, 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 there's no faith involved in it. Oh, I, I, I understand that, but religion is simply. What is it that you love? What is it that you worship? What is it that really kind of defines you and, and makes your way of seeing life uh, a life worth, worth living? This is why I don't think it's like really factually appropriate to ever say, I'm no longer religious. That doesn't really make sense. We walked away from uh, seeing life in an organized way to now everything's just disassociated and life is random completely. Religion can radically name the specific ways we've put our lives together and allow other people to put our lives together for us. Religion happens when we get pulled in, moved in, called out or compelled by something outside of ourselves. It's what we think matters in life. It's how we want to live. It's how we want to play. It's how we want to have our kids see the world. I mean, that's that's really religion in and its whole. And I, I think that that's what Jesus would wants to mess with. Let me, let me illustrate it in this way. Um, Jesus, in uh, John's version of his story of the life and teaching of Jesus, because what we have in the Bible is a collection of a different people's takes on a lot of different things, right? Um, so in the first four books of the New Testament, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different uh, men who wrote down their perspective on the life and the teaching of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all kind of focus on like a similar timeline, similar thing, and they come at it from different perspectives. And then there's John. John's was the last one to be written. And uh, John is very unique in that the timeline's all jacked up. And John identifies as the beloved disciple of Jesus, meaning you had a brother or sister who was the favorite in the family and they knew it and you knew it and they made sure that you knew it, didn't they? And they, they're like, just so you know, mom and dad love me more. And that kind of rubs you the wrong way, but then over time you just got used to it and you like lived with it. And they, they would, you know, your parents would be like, oh, we love you all equally. And you're like, yeah, but you don't, right? And, uh, and that's John in terms of the disciples. And so... He writes it from, when he writes himself in this story, he's the beloved disciple. And um, in his version of the story, he, does some, he takes some unique liberties in how he constructs it, as how he tells the story. It's clear that he's not trying to do it from a 
factually this happened and then historically this happened and then historically this happened. He's all over the place. He's just telling like, here's, here's, I had a unique relationship with Jesus. Let me tell you about it. So early on, right in the very beginning of John's letter, he, he starts his letter by saying, in the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word was with God. The word was God. He was God in the beginning. He made himself, he moved into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson uh, writes. He made himself known and, and, and you know, made himself incarnate or in, in the flesh. And God, the God of the universe, came through the person of Jesus. He's clearly tying it, associating it with Genesis, which starts off with, and every Jewish person would know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He would say, God was clearly involved in the creation of the world, and he's also now, what I'm about to tell you, he's also very clearly involved in the person of Jesus. So when he, when he starts those two things, he's setting the tone for what he's gonna talk about. And then, and then early on in that, he begins to talk about John the Baptist and how John was, uh, this is a different John. So John the author of the apostle is different from John the Baptist, but similar names. Uh, and John the Baptist serves as like this forerunner. He came to kind of prepare the way in terms of somebody coming and, and saying, right behind me comes the king. Don't worry about, you know, that, that kind of thing, or, or prepare the way of the king or whatever. So John's there. He's got his own disciples. And then in verse uh, uh, 35 of this first chapter in the book of John, here's what he says. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples, John the Baptist. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, behold, or look, or take a glance, or attention, everyone, the Lamb of God, which would have been like this figurative sort of, like some sort of a sacrificial thing or some sort of a, um, like a, a precious, the precious one of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus they left uh, what they were doing and they followed, this is by the way, John. This would be John and his brother who had been clear, first identified with, with John the Baptist. Then they see this, Jesus saying this or hearing John say this about Jesus and then leaving them, they begin to follow Jesus. Turning around, verse 38, Jesus saw them following and he asked them, what do you what do you want? Now, there's, there's a couple of ways to read this. One is the way that you would read it as a parent who is trying to get some dang peace and quiet in the house and you go out into the yard to go do some yard work and you turn around and there's your kids and they're following you and you say, what do you want, right? And it's Father's Day, so you're like, what do you want? And so, um, and they're like, I just want a snack. Can I watch a show? Can I do this? Can I have a friend over? Can I do this? And so you're asking them in a, how can I get you what you need to kind of move on to the next thing? But there's a way in which I think John is, again, John is reflecting this back years later, looking back on this as, a, as an experience. As one who was asked this question and looked upon in like eye to eye and, and remembering Jesus looked at me that day, the first time that I met him, and he looks at me and he said, what is it that you want? There's a deeper way in, in reading that, which is, what is it that you want in life? What is it that you're, what are you all about? You followed John the Baptist for a while because you thought you wanted something that he, there's some way of him doing things that met something for you. And now you've heard him say something great about me. And so now you're following me. So what is it that you really want? What are you looking for? What can I help you find? And, and I think in that moment, John is realizing when he asked me that question, he's challenging some basic core principles in my life. He's taking what it is that I want in life and rearranging it and adjusting it and, and looking at this and beginning to shape my religion. And, and again, not like some 
tenet of belief, some structures of here's the things you have to say and assent to and you know, changing all this stuff. But he's, he, he's taking these, these things about me and saying, what is it that you want in life? And can I have you follow me? And can, will you allow me the, the space, the opportunity, the relationship to begin to change some things about the way that you want things in life? Because what John would figure out and what we know if we think about it is that we are oftentimes the things that we want. We are the things that we want. We are a product of the things that we want in life, that we are not necessarily thinking things. We are desiring things. My life and what I believe is important about, about life and the way that I structure my schedule and the way that I spend my money and the way that I invest in relationships are about the things in life that I want. We are what we love and we are what we want. That our desires, our wants, and our longings are the core of identity, the wellspring from which our actions and our behaviors flow. Augustine, St. Augustine would pick up on this in the fourth century and he would say things like this. I'm wandering, I'm, I'm, I'm a restless soul. My heart will be restless until it finds its rest in you. And here's what I found that, I, that, that, that is my problem. I have disordered loves. I love things that are supposed to be loved at a certain level too greatly, and I don't love the things enough that should be held in higher esteem. Or to put it in words that we might understand, if there was a scale of of zero to 10 or one to 10 in terms of appropriate levels of love, I love things that are supposed to be, I'm supposed to love them at like a four, I love them at a 10. And all the things that I'm supposed to love at a 10, I love at like a two. And I'm broken in that way. I'm supposed to love, I'm supposed to have like a, I, I want money, I want financial security, I want relational security in life. I'm supposed to love that at like a six or seven. I chase after that with everything in my being. I love that at 10. And then in like what you say about me, God, what you, what you think of me, when you're, when you're happy with me, when you're satisfied with me, when I'm trying to live up to your standards of expectations, that should be a 10 in my life. It's like a two, maybe a three. And I'm disordered and I'm broken. And all of the things in my life that I'm supposed to like, I, I love disproportionately and, and break me for the things that break you. And, and, and you looking back and, and reflecting on your life, and let's look backwards, let's not look forwards because that's too painful to look at, but looking backwards at your life, how many times would you say in your youth, you love the wrong things too much? You love something at a 10 and it deserved to be a two or three. Again, and, 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 uh, and Augustine would say about evil, evil is simply the distortion of something that's good. Like it's good to want to have financial security, to have relational security. A lot of the things that we desperately want for in life are good things at a level four, but not at a level 10. We love things disproportionately and evil is simply the distortion of something that is good, that we are broken in that way. And so he's, his prayer is, I'm a, I'm a broken person. Reorder my loves. My life is disoriented. I have disorientation towards loves, leading us to remind ourselves that we are simply what we want. That we, we, want. we are religious beings, every single one of us. It's the inescapability of being religious. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to learn to align our loves and our longings with his, to want what he wants, to desire what he desires, to hunger and thirst after God's, and, and to crave a world where he is all in all. 
a vision encapsulated by the shorthand term that would show up over and over again in Scripture as the kingdom of God. He looks at his disciples that day and he says, what is it that you want? And John would say, from that day forward, when I would be with him, he would begin to change things that I want. That all of a sudden, what I thought that I wanted in life weren't as important as the things that he introduced me to. There was a certain way of doing things. And that, that, listen, that's what we have said from the very beginning, that this, the hope and the goal and the, the, the thing about Eastlake is we want, to be the, we want to be a church, the church. And I think the church at its best when it does this, and I'm not saying that we do this the best. I'm just saying that this is our attempt. We want to figure out what it means to live in the way of Jesus. That what we have in scripture uh, is a bunch of uh, introductions and talks about people learning to discern the way of Christ in their context. In fact, uh, one of those things is gonna be all, like some of the letters in the New Testament are, are letters written by the Apostle Paul, who at one point in his life was, a, uh, was adamantly against Christianity, did everything within his power to jail people who believed in this sort of thing, became an unlikely convert to Christianity, and then used some of that as a motivation to start communities where they would figure out what it means to live out the way of Jesus in Colossae, in Philippi, in Corinth, in Philippi, in all of these different areas of life. And in that, and, and, for, and, and then the church took the ins, what they believed to be the inspired writings of Paul, that he didn't write this of his own wisdom, that there was some sort of a divine integration into this. He wrote these for them. And, and because of our common human nature, some of that has value for us. Some of it is kind of left over for them. They struggle with this. We don't have that. We have unique things in our area in 2023 and living in the Tri-Cities that we struggle with that they didn't. So we have to kind of mix and mingle and, and, and adjust as needed. But for, for to some degree, we're still in the same boat. We're still the ones looking at Jesus who looks at us and says to us in the same way, what is it that you want? Would you follow me? Would you allow me to be able to shape the things that you desire most? You are what you love. You are what you want. And let me shape that. Let me change that. Let me, let me, let me do my part to, to make it so that you begin to want different things in life, that you begin to love things rightly at a 10 that should be a 10 and rightly as a four things that should be a four and I'm making these categories up, but you, you understand what I'm saying in this way. So Paul would write this to the church in Philippi who's navigating this, trying to figure out what it means to live in the way of Jesus. In the first century in Philippi, he writes this, and here's my prayer, here's what I want so badly from you. Chapter one, verse nine through 11. That your love may abound more and more in, in knowledge and depth and insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and to the praise of God. Paul prays that their love might abound more and more because in some sense, love is this condition for knowledge. His prayer is, I pray that you love so deeply that you would begin to learn to do something about this. And that, that sets the foundation for you to be able to understand what it is about you that you that 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 is that, that, that it shapes a level of knowledge that comes with this. I, I liken this earlier to um uh in first service to uh like like a marriage when you get all dressed up. Remember that day you got dressed up and stood in front of friends and family and a pastor like me. You made vows and a promise to, to the person across from you and said, "I'll always, I'll never, I'll you know all these different vows and things." You're making these promises of love and 
you, you think back about, talk to somebody who's been married for 5, 10, 20, 30, 50 years or whatever, and did you know what all that entailed when you said those promises? And you would say, I, I knew almost nothing. I knew nothing about myself when I did this. I'll always do this. And you're like, I, 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 I want to believe that. I, I want to, like, again, proving that this, this for us is, is we don't even fully understand what this means, and yet we lead with promises and then only later on do we understand what those promises entail. Paul would say, that's how life works. Change the things that you want. And then the knowledge about this stuff comes later, that when we categorize religious as this category of thinking things, we're really like putting the cart before the horse. That we are, again, what we love. So when we make these promises, we're doing this out of abundance of love, knowing that someday the intuition and the understanding of what that entails is going to come. But it starts with something different. It's not that I know in order to love, but rather I love in order to know. Let me change the way that you love. Because you're religious. You love things. You are what you love. You have an affinity. You have a way of seeing the way that the world works. You are a product of the things that you love. Or James, James uh, historically speaking, probably the brother of Jesus who writes as the pastor of the Jerusalem church in a specific way to his church, oftentimes dealing with like, guys, we gotta do this. It can't just be words that we say, but things that we do. Says this in verse 26 of his letter to the church. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and the religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. He likens the thing that Paul just said earlier, like this filled with the fruit of righteousness, a fruit that comes. Or in, in this way, religion that our, God, our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That time is the gate revelatory when it comes to defining what your religion is and as it turns out what it was. Your religion is the shape that your love takes in all things. You are religious. You cannot escape it. You love things. We, I love things. I love, I, that's, this is the way that I see the world works. And oftentimes what I love shapes my behavior in this. And for me to be like, well, here's what I believe is kind of, they would, I think James would say, it doesn't matter what you say you believe. Are you caring after orphans and widows? Are you doing, the, is the fruit, it's the fruit of what you do that's gonna define this. But please do not think, don't fall into the trap of thinking I'm not really religious. It's just a matter of simply what actually moves you. What, what do you believe in? Where is your heart? What are you called to? That's what is most important, that your religion is the shape that your love takes in all things. So a question for us as we move through this series, as we go, okay, maybe I'm not irreligious as I, as irreligious as I thought. Maybe I am religious and maybe religious has never been a, a negative term for you. You're like, I'm fine. I grew up in church. It's fine. You can call me, you can think of me as religious, whatever. <clears throat> but again, a shift in, in thinking like this, but I, I'm religious. I love things and it shapes my way of thinking. And if I want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, and if I want to figure out the way, it's going to have to deal with my way of loving and my way of being moved by things. 
So it's gonna take an inventory, a mental inventory of again, what moves me and what is it that I love. I grew up uh, in the era of LimeWire and Napster. Anybody else in that era? And in that era, one of the ways that you express, that you would express love or what moves me would be by making friends a mixtape and being like, here you go. This, this is, I thought of you and I, uh, this is what our friendship means to me. Or if you came to our wedding, if you came to our wedding on June 10th of 2005, what you would have left with was a burnable CD with our photo on it, Kylie and I, black and white photo, wrapped up with a pink bow. And I, listen, guys, I still have about 50 uh, CDR, like writable CDs up in my office. I don't even own a CD writer anymore. I don't even know what I'm gonna do with these, but I can't pull myself to throw them away. They're up there. You, you wrote CDs, you had these things, you had, you had these tapes that you would make or you whatever. And, and on, on that CD, if you came to our wedding, if you left, he'd be like, here's this disc, this is the music that you heard us. And we want you to, when you hear this, when you play this, think of us, right? That was our, our, our way of kind of saying, here's what moves us in this time. Like, man, if you're, if you're like under 25, like you don't even know what that feels like, do you? The closest thing that you have is this idea of I created a Spotify playlist and I'm sharing it with you, right? And that's close. It's not as tangible and as forceful as this. And, and I haven't figured out how to translate that well. In fact, um, we celebrated, I celebrated my 40th uh, birthday in, back in April. And we had some people in this room. We did a trivia night thing and a, and a game night and poker night for the guys afterwards. And in preparation for poker night, I developed a playlist for me as 40 years this is, this is, these are the songs that shaped me, right? I spent like two hours putting this playlist together. And I played this, and I didn't say anything about it. We just started playing poker and hanging out. And I'm playing this song, and all of a sudden, Eve Six comes on with the Heart in a Blender song. And I'm like, oh, man, this is my jam, dude, right? And then freaking Green Day comes on. And everybody's, and it, about 30 minutes into this, like, and all, all the guys around the table are about my same age, and they're all going, oh, man, I love this song. I heard, oh, man, I love this song no less than 30 times that night, right? Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, just uh, Snow Patrol, Coldplay, all this kind of stuff. Everybody's like, oh man, this is so good. And everybody's, and then later on, people be like, what playlist is this? And I'd be like, I'm so glad that you asked. I put this together. <laughs> this is me. I did this. This is my gift to you. I'm gonna share this link with you, right? And I'm gonna send it out in the weekly this week for all of you. No, I'm, not, I'm just kidding. I'm not gonna do that. But like that's, that was our way of being like here, this is, this is my, this is what shapes me. This is what I believe. This is, and you would say, ah, these are just songs that I like. I know, but to some degree, music has this medium where when you were dating, you gave something to, you gave a song to somebody. You gave, you gave something to be like, this is, this is what I think about you, babe. I, I can't say it. I don't like the words, but here you go. This is it. This is us. This is, and, and I'm telling you, it's, it's a powerful, now my, my daughter comes home and she plays me her music and I'm like, this is garbage music. What is this crap? How do you even listen to this stuff? But, but in, in, in a degree, it's, it's probably the closest thing that we have um, or, or one of the more obvious things that we have to be like, this is what moves me. This is, what's a, a, this is a, a makeup of me. Even it's, it's not my words. I didn't produce the music, but I like it. But I like it and I like the message, I like the tone, I like the beat, I like the something. This is, this is part of my identity. And we kind of put it out there for, for, for everyone to see. It's the closest thing that we have to realizing that we are, again, what it is that we love. 
And it's a very tangible way of realizing that we're all religious. So the term irreligious, really, it only works when you add the baggage of like the religious things and, and, and all the churchy-churchy stuff that, that comes along with that. But, but I, I don't think it's worth... I don't think it's worth attaching ourselves to. I, th- I think it's worth looking at, and for the sake of uh, the next couple of weeks, being like, all right, I need to step away from that. I don't want to rush to disassociate with, from that because I am religious. I do care about things. I do have a heart for things. There are things that move me. There are, there's ways that I see the way that the world works and the things that I love, the things that I want to see in culture, the things that I want to see in my community, the things that I want my kids to be able to participate in and and, and way to have a beneficial presence in this world. So I, I guess I am sort of religious. And once we agree on that, and once we get to that, then Jesus has the ability, when we look at the, the, the way of Jesus, Jesus goes, that's what I wanna work on. That's what I wanna talk about. That's what I wanna be about. That's what I, when I look at you and I say, what is it that you want? He's like, I wanna shape you in that. That's the arena in which he does his best work. So today, the whole goal was get you to realize, you know what, I guess I am a little bit religious. I came up with a few questions. If you do life uh, with somebody who is a part of this, uh, it's, it's a spouse, it's a, it's a significant other, it's a friend or whatever, and you want to kind of continue the conversation over coffee this week or lunch or dinner or around the dinner table or whatever, um, a couple of questions just to kind of spur you on. Uh, you're not going to probably be able to write all of these down, but we have an app. If you download the app, it's in the click on the notes section. They're all going to be in there to kind of work on this thing. So questions that continue the conversation. Number one is this, what are some of the labels that you're currently wearing and what do they say about you? That's just a kind of a fun one to start the conversation up because I asked it rhetorically in the first part, but you could actually play that out and see what it looks like. Number two is this, prior to today's talk, would you have considered yourself to be religious and how about now? It's a great way to be able to talk about some of the baggage that comes along with that and what it means to be, you know, to realize you are, it is what you love. And number three, your religion is the shape that your love takes in all things. Do you agree or disagree with that and what that might mean for you? Hopefully that starts some fruitful conversation for you as you begin to discern what life looks like for you and what God wants to do through Jesus in your life. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that you would help uh, us to begin to see um, that we do uh, have, uh, that that we are are the things that we love and that uh, oftentimes we've gotten that wrong. It's not hard for us to look in the past and realize the disordered love piece. And there's a reason that Augustine's writing resonates so deeply with us uh, 1600 years later that he wasn't wrong, that he's probably on to something, that we've got some work to do in that area. And luckily, your son invites us into that and wants us to work through that. So give us wisdom to see what that looks like in our life. It occurs to you something about it in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.